Welcome to Heartland. So glad you guys are here on this, the 67th day of the month of March, or at least that's what it feels like. So um, Benny's right. We're, we're wrapping up a series today. And if you haven't been here over the last few weeks, you missed that on the first week of this series. Dugan talked to us about how Jesus is funny. We were invited to see for ourselves that Jesus is funny. God has a sense of humor. And so we have a sense of humor as creatures created in his image. And then last week, of course, Benny said that John preached a message uh, that everybody is welcome to come and see for ourselves that everybody is welcome in the house of God. And it was a phenomenal message. You absolutely should watch it. But if you're in the room this morning, don't watch it right now. Wait, please, until I'm done. Because uh, I'm wrapping up the series today and I'm inviting you to see for yourself that Jesus cares for you. That Jesus cares. And not caring in that similar way that I care for those dogs in the Sarah McLaughlin ASPCA commercials, you know, where I care for about five seconds until I can skip the ad and get back to the video that I was watching. Do I call the toll-free number? Absolutely not. I don't. And every single time. But fortunately for us, Jesus doesn't care for us in that way. Jesus cares and the depth of his care can hardly be comprehended. And just so that we're all aware this morning, what we're going to talk about, the moments we're going to share are going to fall so tragically short of the depth and the height and the width and the width, the width and the width that Jesus actually cares for us. That's a mouthful, isn't it? But you know what? We're going to try. We're going to give it a shot to see just how much Jesus cares for us. So our scripture this morning is in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. It reads, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. And yet the news about him spread all the more, so the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. When I was a kid, uh, I would spend many summer days at the swimming hole down the street from my house. And I realized what, that when I use the word swimming hole, it sounds like the year was 1952. It wasn't. I just don't know what else to call it because it was bigger than a pond, but smaller than a lake. My family, we just called it the, the lagoon. So I'd ask my mom if I could go swimming at Swanson Lagoon and she'd pick up the telephone and call Nancy Swanson. The lagoon was in her backyard and pick up the phone, you know, with a cord to it that attached to the wall because it was the 90s. And uh, once I got the okay from Mrs. Swanson, I would ride my bike down the street to her house and I'd ride my bike into her backyard and she had a little dock, a little boat dock, and I'd run off the dock and I'd jump off of it into the water and they had a, a little floating dock just offshore. And I'd swim to that floating dock. And it was from there that I would swim and dive into the water and do flips off the dock and play that horrifying game called What Touched My Leg? You know, that you play when you... One of my favorite things to do, of course, was to throw an inner tube off the dock and like dive through the hole. And I loved it. I loved it. So after an entire afternoon of swimming was completed, I'd ride my bike back home. And there, waiting in the driveway, would be my mother holding the garden hose in her hand because there was absolutely no way she was going to let me back inside the house. You see, if you were imagining Swanson Lagoon to look something like this, 
you are absolutely wrong. Because in Swanson Lagoon, there are lily pads and frogs and seaweed and fish and algae. And this is actually what Swanson Lagoon looked like. So, oh, and by the way, Swanson Lagoon was home to no less than 457 Canadian geese. You know what Canadian geese do all day long? I'm not sure if I could say the word poop when I'm preaching, but if I could, that is what I would say that geese did all over the place. So when I would swim out to that little floating dock, there would be a broom on it so that I could sweep off all the goose muffins that were on the dock. And did I sweep them into a bag to be properly disposed of? Nope. Directly into the water, those things went. The very same water that I was swimming in and enjoying breaking the heat in. So it's understandable that when I arrived at home, my mom was standing out in the front yard with a hose for the detoxification process. So I had many nicknames growing up, but on Lagoon Day, my mom would affectionately greet me by saying, welcome home, pond scum, because that's what I was covered in pond scum. There'd be like bits of green algae clung to my face and my hair and my board shorts. And so of course my mom would hose me off in the front yard like I'm a prisoner. You know, and the first five seconds of it was actually quite pleasant because the hose had been laying out in the summer sun all day long, so it'd be nice and warm. But after those few seconds were over came the ice bath and I would be pelted from face to feet with icy cold water, washing off all of the pond scum. And so that was only phase one of the detoxification process. Phase two was I had to go take a shower with industrial strength soap and a Brillo pad and scrub myself clean. And it was only after I had completed the whole process that I was then welcomed back into the family community life. And I knew the process had been completed when my sister wouldn't tell me that I smelled like a frog. And it was only then that I ceased to become pond scum. Leprosy was like pond scum in the same way that an ocean is like a droplet of water. Leprosy was unimaginably awful. The word leper that appears in the text is the Greek word lepra, and it's just a generic term for all sorts of skin diseases, but it can also include Hansen's disease, which we know is a, a disease that causes skin lesions and severe nerve damage. It can result in the loss of limbs and tissues, and it can render the victim completely unrecognizable. Very often, any movements for lepers would be extraordinarily difficult for them. So they were required by law to live in their own colonies far outside the city. Leviticus chapter 13 out, outlines all of the, the laws that lepers had to follow. One of them was that they had to live outside the city gates. They also wore special clothes with bells sewn into them to alert others of their presence. So when they walked around, people would know that they had leprosy, so to keep their distance. More than that, when lepers were in public, they had to cover their face with a cloth. And whenever they went about, they had to shout, unclean, to alert everybody that a leper is nearby, so to keep their distance. And we can only speculate what this man's story is. We're not told but perhaps one day he noticed an off-color patch of skin on his arm. You know, the kind that you notice, but you don't really pay attention to. You kind of keep an eye on it to see if it gets worse. And in his case, it did get worse. It began to spread. And so he went to the physicians and he tried creams and oils, but it didn't work. It only kept getting worse. So he appeared before the priests as the laws required to see if there was anything that could be done for him. 
And that's when the worst possible news that he could have heard was spoken over him and he was declared unclean. He was instructed to leave the community at once because back then there was no cure for leprosy. This was a death sentence for this man. If he had a wife, he had to leave her. He wasn't even allowed to embrace her before he left. If he had children, he had to say goodbye to them. He had to leave his parents, his friends. He had to leave everybody in his life. He lost his job. He lost his standing in the community. He was considered dead to everybody. And taking whatever items he could, he walked outside the city to go live in exile among the encampment of the other lepers, complete strangers, completely detached from the life that he had come to know. At this point, he was utterly alone. He was cast out into the wilderness to live in caves or in tents, in literal no man's land, in outer darkness, cut off from the community and unable to participate in worship, in the synagogue or in the temple. So by extension, he was cut off from the very presence of God. So in order for him to survive, he had to go into the towns and beg for either food or money. And he was required to, t to stay 10 cubits away from the nearest person. Jim, would you come up here really quickly? Because 10 cubits, we don't know what a cubit is. A cubit is about one and a half feet. So 10 cubits is 15 feet. This is, where are we? Where are we? That's 14. That's still 14. 15 feet. This is 15 feet. This is how far the leper had to stay from the nearest person, 15 feet, until the day he succumbed to his illness. 15 feet from his friends, 15 feet from his family, 15 feet from anybody that he knew, 15 feet from a well person. He had to stay for the rest of his days this far away from the nearest human being, 15 feet. Thanks, Jim. I wonder staying 15 feet away from everybody at all times until the day he died, if he asked, God, aren't you supposed to be good? And if you're good, then why is this happening to me? Have you forgotten about me, God? Are you mad at me? Do you even care? And I think this is one of the most painful and difficult questions that we wrestle with as believers in Jesus because we say that God is good. We declare that God is good. We, de we declare in song, we just sang how God is loving and God is so great that he's crazy about us and that God wants good things for us, but suddenly suffering shows up in our lives. And with suffering comes doubt. Doubt that God might not really be good. Or if God really is good, then perhaps God really isn't all-powerful. Because certainly, an all-powerful and an all-good God would not allow suffering. I mean, if God loves us, then God would prevent us from suffering, right? Yet, suffering is a part of our life. So, then the only conclusion that we can come up with is, maybe God just simply doesn't care. He's aware of our pain. He's able to intervene. But our suffering is nothing more than a short interruption to God's regularly scheduled programming, and he's not going to call the toll-free number either because he just does not care, at least not enough to do something about it. But is that true? You see, at some point in the story, this man heard about Jesus. He heard about Jesus, the healer. 
We don't know how. Perhaps he overheard a conversation. Perhaps somebody he knew from his former life went and told him about Jesus healing the blind, healing the sick, healing the lame, casting an evil spirit out of somebody. Um, We don't know how he heard, but we know that he heard that Jesus is a miracle worker. And that is what he needs more than anything else in the world is a miracle. We're not sure how long he suffered for, but it's reasonable to believe that he suffered for years because Luke tells us he was covered in leprosy. What started out as a patch maybe on his arm has taken over his entire body, rendering him unrecognizable. And now Jesus is his only hope. So he sets off to find Jesus, hearing that he's in a nearby city. Perhaps he's limping through the discomfort of mangled feet, perhaps clutching a walking stick to help him along his way, all the while yelling, unclean, I'm unclean, stay 15 feet away from me, over the sound of the bells sewn into his garments as a safety measure, just so that everybody knows that he's a leper, even though he's quite easy to spot. People along the path notice him and step out of the way. They're like, you pond scum, get away from me, 15 feet, stay back. And suddenly he sees Jesus. There he is. He's, unrecon- or he's recognizable to the man. That's got to be the rabbi. So he goes up to him and he stays his distance and he falls on his face before him and says these words, if you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. This guy believes that Jesus is capable The question isn't of whether or not Jesus can. It's a question of whether or not Jesus will. It's not a question of, is Jesus able? It's a question of, am I valuable? Do you care for me, Jesus? After all, I'm already dead to society. I'm a lost cause. Nobody else cares about me, Jesus, so why should you? But if you're willing, you can make me clean. But am I worthy of being made clean? Am I worthy of being restored? He's asking the same question that you and I ask when we're at rock bottom, at the end of our rope, at the end of our patience, at the height of our pain, at the depth of our loss, when all else has faded to black and there's no light left, maybe in a quiet whisper in our hearts, we ask, Jesus, do you even care about me? And it's there with his face in the dirt, his only hope, standing before him when the unthinkable happens. Jesus stepped forward, broke the barrier, and walked toward the man covered in leprosy, and he reached out his hand and touched him. Can you imagine how significant that moment was? The people standing around would have immediately gasped in shock and horror because nobody ever touches a leper ever, but Jesus did. Can you imagine what that touch meant for that man? After a lifetime of staying 15 feet away from the nearest person, Jesus is touching you. Jesus is not repulsed by you. Jesus is not scared of you. He's not wincing. He's not turning away. Then Jesus, not looking at him, but seeing him, speaks these words. I am willing. Be clean. Luke states that immediately the leprosy left him. In that very moment, with the hand of the Son of God upon him, he was healed. The looks of horror turned into looks of amazement. The gasps of disgust turned into shouts of praise. The years of enduring a disease that rendered him unclean, unrecognizable, and unwelcome were completely undone. 
This was a watershed healing in this moment. And this story highlights just how deeply and completely Jesus cares for us. So for the rest of our time, I simply want to point out three ways in which Jesus cares for us as evidenced in this healing. The first is Jesus cares because he is with us. Jesus cares because he is with us. Jesus is God in the flesh. So do you remember when John talked at Christmas time about this Emmanuel stuff, God being with us? Well, that stuff is important. God became a human and Jesus himself experienced pain and suffering with us. The loneliness that this man felt, Jesus experienced it. He knows what it's like. The rejection, Jesus knows what that's like. The pain and discomfort, both physical and spiritual, Jesus knows what that's like. Listen to these words from the prophet Isaiah speaking about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Sounds like it's describing a leper, but it's not. It's describing Jesus Christ. When we cry out to God in our pain and our loss, God is not stretching his imagination, searching for empathy, struggling to identify with the pain that we're going through. God is nodding along, declaring over me and you, I get it. Yes, I get it. I've been there. I know what that's like. It is absolutely awful. Jesus is with us. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He gets it. He understands. So then why doesn't God just stop suffering? Why? I have absolutely no idea why. Honestly, I don't. I wish I knew. I wish I had the answer. It's really quite annoying at times. Sometimes we're tempted to come up with our own answer and we say things like, well, everything must happen for a reason. But I really don't like that at all because it implies that God is a God of limited resources. And so God has to use suffering in order to achieve whatever end he's accomplishing in our lives. But God doesn't work like that. That is not true. God is not the God of limited resources. And you know what? I think until the day we see Jesus Christ face to face, we are always going to carry the question with us, if you care, then why do you allow suffering? But let's imagine for a moment that God showed up and told you why, that God gave you the answer why, and God told you what God was accomplishing in your life. Would that ease the pain? Would that take away the suffering? Would that relieve the, the burden in your soul if God told you why? I don't think it would. I don't think knowing why would do us any good. And that, friends, is why God promises us his presence. A few years ago, I bought a book for my daughter called Phoebe and Her Unicorn. It's a delightful little graphic novel uh, that I would read to her at bedtime. And it's about a girl named Phoebe who meets a magical unicorn out in the woods. And the unicorn grants Phoebe one wish. So Phoebe was a lonely kid, somewhat of a social outcast and not too much like the other girls in school. So her wish was that the unicorn would become her very best friend. So they explored the forest together and they skipped stones together and they had tea parties and all sorts of adventures. And then one day, Phoebe was particularly down because a girl at school named Dakota was bullying her and making her feel awful. And so Phoebe hatched this brilliant plan that, you know what, I'm going to take my friend the unicorn to school to show that punk Dakota and everyone in school is going to be jealous of me. And so they devised this plan together, but the unicorn got trapped gazing at her beautiful reflection in a puddle of water because I guess 
unicorns can get trapped that way. Um, so Phoebe was furious, of course, that day after school. Like, you never showed up for me. You didn't make all my friends jealous. What gives? And so through tears, she yelled at her unicorn for not being there. Here's what she says. She says, you're a unicorn. Meeting you was supposed to make my life awesome. The unicorn replied, well, then you should have wished for that. But you wished for me to be your best friend. And here it is. Here's the line. Pay attention. Maybe you should treat me as a friend rather than as a prop, Phoebe. What if we merely view Jesus as a prop and not a friend? What if God's presence does more for us than God's provision? What if God's affection toward us does more for our soul than God's explanation to us? And that is why God chooses to be with us. The type of relationship that Jesus desires to have with us is not one where he is way far off on his throne dispensing wishes to the afflicted. Jesus wants to be with us in our pain, in our distress, walking with us in and through our darkest moments because he cares. Listen to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along paths for his name's sake. Even though, listen, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God doesn't declare even though I'm about to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou intervenest, and at the last moment, all hardships he doth averteth for me. It doesn't say that. Jesus cares because he is with us, even in the darkest valley, and he promises never to abandon us ever. But even more than that, Jesus cares because he's for us. Jesus is for us. God didn't design us for suffering. You realize that, right? God didn't design us for suffering. Pain and suffering are intruders into God's creation. And so now God's plan for us in our suffering is to be our helper, our advocate, and our healer. And there's at least three types of healings that happen in this story that occur for the man with leprosy. The first is a physical healing, okay? So the, the leprosy was immediately gone when Jesus declared this man clean. Immediately, it happened instantaneously. Jesus, by the way, doesn't always work like that, but sometimes he does. And to be clear, I have no idea why Jesus heals immediately for some and eventually for others, whether it's in this life or the life to come. I have no idea. Jesus is quite all over the place in scripture, if you want to know the truth. For some, he simply spoke a word and they were healed. For others, Jesus didn't even need to be in the same room for the healing to take place. For the Roman centurion's child, that kid was somewhere off in the distance and said, go home now, he's better. Jesus didn't even need to be with him. Um, sometimes it says that Jesus healed many who came to see him, but not all. And remember that time that Jesus healed a blind dude by spitting in the dirt and making mud? That was super weird. Jesus is all over the place in the way that he heals. And you want to know something? I think the major frustration that we have with God sometimes isn't that he doesn't care for us. It's that God cares for us in a way that we don't want him to. The manner in which God cares for us is not always the manner in which we want God to care for us. And here's something difficult for all of us to embrace, myself included. What God wants for us 
is to mold us increasingly more toward Christ-likeness, not to give us an easy and trouble-free life. God doesn't cause suffering, but he uses it. And then he gives our suffering meaning. He redeems it. Romans 5, 3 through 4 says, Not only so, but we glory in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. If you want hope, sometimes the path to that is through suffering. And I cannot tell you how many times here at Heartland I have sat across the table from somebody who has shared with me the depth of their pain, the trauma they have gone through, the horror of the suffering that they've endured. And in the same story, they mention the mind-boggling peace and presence of Jesus Christ in their life that outweighs their suffering. That in and of itself is a total miracle. But that's grace, man. Grace does not make sense, does it? The second type of healing was spiritual healing. The word clean that Jesus uses in the story is the same word clean that appears in 1 John and Hebrews and James and all over the New Testament about being forgiven from our sins and being made right with God. Jesus didn't simply heal the man's affliction. Jesus healed the man's soul. This was a total healing of this man, full and complete, his flesh and his soul. And that is the most important type of healing, by the way, for our soul to be restored into right standing with God. You know what eventually happened to this man with leprosy? He died. You want to know how I know? Because he's not here today, is he? And that's what happens with every miracle answer that we receive this side of heaven. It has a shelf life on it that lasts only as long as we do. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Guess what? He died again. The blind whose sight was restored in scripture. Guess what? They died too. Every single person that Jesus healed in his lifetime eventually died and departed this life because the miracles here don't last forever. But when they died in this life, Jesus Christ welcomed them to their eternal home, the place that was prepared for them and for us and everyone who believes And there, there is no death, there is no pain, there is no suffering, and the healing lasts eternal because that is life eternal. The third type of healing was a relational healing. Jesus tells him to go to the priest and present himself to them, which sounds super weird. You know, you're you're clean now. There's witnesses. Everybody watched it happen. But Jesus still says, go to them and do the proper purification process, the the proper detoxification process, go to them. And Jesus knew that if he didn't do the man with leprosy, if he didn't go to the priest and do what the law required, they never would have believed him. He says, I know you have been healed physically and spiritually, but just go to them, show yourself to them as a testimony to them. Just go so that you could be welcomed back into the community. They're going to check you out. They're going to inspect you. They're going to hose you off in the front yard, and then they're going to declare you clean, and then you could join back in the family community life, and you'll be welcomed back in the community and the temple and the synagogue, fully restoring all of his relationships. He gets his life back after appearing before the priests. Finally, Jesus cares because he's pursuing us. Jesus is pursuing us. The man with leprosy was required to stand 15 feet away from Jesus. 
15 feet. And so when he came up to Jesus, it's reasonable to believe that when he fell down on the dirt, he isn't merely whispering to Jesus from a quiet voice, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He's shouting to Jesus to make sure that Jesus hears, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus do? Jesus broke through the barrier and he walked toward the man to touch him and say, I am willing, be clean. Jesus is pursuing us. Jesus stepped out of eternity off his throne and crossed the galaxy for you. That is a whole lot farther than 15 feet. He suffered with us. And guess what? We brought suffering in. Do you realize that? The reason why there is suffering and death and disease in our world is because we cheated on God. God gave us everything except one thing. And that one thing was the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we were lied to. And we were told that is the only thing that could make us like God. And we took that fruit. And when we did, we invited pain and death and suffering into our lives. And the truth is, friends, we take that fruit every single day, don't we? Because every single day we believe that we know better than God. Every single day we choose our own path. Every single day we choose rebellion. And with that, we invite all of the consequences of that into our own lives. And then we have the audacity to say, God, this is your fault. And I know some of us, we choose the things that happen to us. Some of us, we don't choose the things that happen to us. But here's what I know is Jesus steps into it regardless. He suffers with us. He suffers alongside of us because he is right there with us. And Jesus declares because of his sacrifice on the cross, he says to us, I am willing, be clean. You wanna know whether or not Jesus cares for you? Listen to the words from C.S. Lewis. He writes, God who needs nothing, God who needs nothing, loves into existence holy superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross. The flayed back press against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the mesial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of the back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. So friends, what do we see when we turn our eyes to heaven and ask Jesus, do you care? We see the face of Jesus bruised and bloody looking down at us from that cross. They're achieving for us a full and complete and eternal healing, declaring, yes, I am willing. I care for you. I love you. Be cleansed. The cross is proof that Jesus cares for you in a way that we can't even begin to wrap our minds around. Jesus says in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that they would lay their life down for their friends. Yes, Jesus is our God. Jesus is our redeemer. Jesus is our creator. Jesus is our healer. But Jesus is also our friend because he went to that cross and he laid his life down for us.